Hey, I'm Nancy Rommelman. I'm a journalist and author, and my contribution to Go All The Way is an essay called Analog Anthems. And I'm Jeff Rugby, and I'm uh, the owner of Super Megabot Music Concern, which is a record company in this day and age, strangely, and uh, creator of the comic book Gunning for Hits, and the author of uh, an essay on Cheap Trick in Go All The Way. Hey, so uh, something that I, I was reading your essay, which I super enjoyed, and I want to talk about Cheap Trick in a little bit, but one thing I was really impressed with, and um, also because I kind of write I write about true crime sometimes, uh, nonfiction. I am interested in your comics, which are crime-related. So can you tell me a little about them? Yeah, so um, I had this idea back when I started working with Bowie, um, which was what if, you know, we had just spent a ton of money on his catalog, licensing his catalog, and it wasn't a good period for him. It was like after Never Let Me Down, which he kind of sort of embarrassed about in retrospect and then the tune machine record had just come out and there was a lot of political stuff going on with that record and his label and uh i had this thought which of course seems ridiculous now but what would happen if um he sort of went on to become one of those acts that just plays at the state fair and nobody cares <laughs> anymore? Uh, which is just you know it's like it's a very absurd thought anyway and, and then I, I had this idea for like, well, how do you deal with that? And, you know, the obvious answer, having lived through the death of John Lennon, is that you would have to kill him. And and then, you know, all of a sudden the catalog would sell like crazy, um, which, again, horrible thought and not realistic at all. Um, but um, it, it, it gave me this idea for a story that I carried around for years. I'd always wanted to do a comic book. And then when David and Prince died, I... Um, I, I did it. And, um, and, and it's basically centers around a guy who's a music business, business executive. So write what you know, but it's presented in as like crime fiction because, um, the guy's a scumbag as many, uh, music label executives have been rumored to be. <laughs> and, uh, and his methods of uh, making things work are, um, are very unorthodox. So in the first issue, I kind of outline, uh, the signing of a new band and the way I present it is in the same way that someone like Richard Stark would describe uh, a bank heist. So that's sort of its crime, you know, it's crime fiction connection is that um, contracts are bank heists. And did you draw it also? I didn't. Um, okay. I got really lucky and got put together with a, an awesome guy who did a great job. But uh, I am thinking about drawing the second one. Wow. I want to get a copy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No problem. I will absolutely send you one. Uh, I'll, and I'll send you my book. I had a book that came out last year called uh, To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder. So we can swap, um, we can swap crime books. That would be great. I have read some stuff about that book and it sounds amazing and it's, it seems like an incredible story. So it was uh it was a, you know, an interesting story to work one's way into because when we hear about these sorts of things, you know, mother drops children from bridge. It's um, it, yeah, obviously it's a rough thing to hear. And the mind also, I think kind of wants to protect itself and saying like, ah, nah, you know what? Can't really go there. So she's crazy or she's evil and just do with her what you will. And I'm done. And I thought, yeah, well, okay, I get that. But um, how does this happen? 
And maybe if we actually look at how these things happen, I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, was, I was curious in how this story happened, but once you do understand it, um, it becomes a little less scary, I think. Um, mm -hmm. It also shows you a little something that you may, may not want to look at. So anyway, um, so I was going to ask you how your essay came to be in this book. Well, so uh, I have this record company and um, probably my favorite band of this century, absolutely hands down my favorite band of this century is this band called Czar from L.A., who uh, got signed to Hollywood Records after this huge bidding war and put out, um, you know, a couple of the, the greatest records I've ever heard. And um, nothing really happened. Like everything just sort of went sideways um, in all the worst ways. And um, the, the guys came out the other end fine, I think. But um, it's just such an injustice that they aren't. Uh, more widely known and i sort of i feel like they're the big star of this century like at some point there's going to be this awakening where people go oh my god i can't believe i never heard these are records or listen to them again and they'll sound different in a in a new context rather than of the day but anyway the, the label uh reached we reached out to jeff whalen who uh, was the uh, frontman for Czar, and he had a new record ready to go and we had started the label as just a, a catalog uh, label we were going to do reissues and i told my partner you can punch me in the face if i ever suggest that we sign a new artist yeah. um, and uh and then i played him jeff's record and he's like we got to put this out it's really good so um so that's how i met jeff and then sw loudon or steve coulter as he's uh was uh, also a crime writer look at this exactly your thread here hmm. so he invited me uh because we met through jeff and um and then just recently, uh, I put out uh, a, a record that has both Jeff and Steve in the band. Uh, it's called The Brother Steve, ironically, uh, which was their first band in college. So, um, so it's it's been great to get to know those guys, and uh, and it was so exciting to be asked to to get involved with this. What was your uh, your route to uh, go all the way? Mm, I uh. uh... Coulter and I have a mutual friend named Matt Welch, but I didn't even know who Coulter was or S.W. Loudon. I, I, but I saw something that Matt retweeted, and it was a playlist uh, on Spotify, a pop playlist. And I'm like, I like pop music. And it turned out to be just all these, just all these 70s songs that I loved. And um, I wound up telling Matt, I'm like, man, your friend's playlist was just so great. And he's like, oh, you know, he's um, putting together this book. You should write an essay. For him and um so i i don't know I tweeted it or something and it and it just worked out and actually we were kind of kicking around like what are you gonna write about nancy i'm like well you know i like blondie i like this i like that and i actually think i actually think it was his idea the analog anthems he's like well what about oh oh i know because i was talking about blondie and telephone and he's like well uh maybe you want to write something about the analog anthems and that's then bingo i just you know went back in time and thought of all these songs that just meant a lot to me at these different times and really made me just go um, and feel and all that stuff, which is, as I think I was um, saying to you earlier, um, like I, I didn't know that power pop was actually a thing. Like I didn't know it was a, a category of music. I just know that these songs did and do make me feel a certain way. They make me just want to go. And, um, and it was super fun to write. And I'm just so, so glad to be included. 
Well, I think what you wrote is really great. And it, it's, it's very cool that you, um, you know, that you weren't aware of the power pop, you know, subculture, because it is this whole bizarre community, um, you know, of, of good people who spend all day arguing about what music is power pop and what music isn't power pop. Um, and it's nice to have a fresh voice in there that isn't uh, making that argument. That's yeah. just talking about the music in a very straightforward way. Um, and and, and it's, it's funny because I was looking through the book and I realized that a lot of it, um, you know, I mean, everybody who writes something in the book is very much in love with power pop and all sort of trying to solve the DNA of power pop. And, and we were talking earlier about Carly Jepsen, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. how that's really, it is power pop. And, um, it, you know, it, it shouldn't be this, um, this tribal thing and you should let people decide what they think power pop is because I think at the core they're having this argument about like, well, the further we get away from what we all absolutely agree power pop is, uh, the more we have to bitterly fight about is it power pop or not? Yeah. And art by consensus is never a good thing. So, but True. yeah, I, I, I was telling you before that, you know, call me maybe, but my song, my, my entire essay is about, you know, being on the phone um, pretty much except for the, for the last piece. Um, and I mean, the last song, which is also another great song. But um, I wanted to put Call Me Maybe in there because it's just, God, I mean, that song just makes you go. I mean, you could be three years old or, I don't know, 80 years old and hear that song. And, you know, you're just going to just going to feel it. Yeah. And I, I, I think uh, we were talking about this, too, is that people, um, they, people who tend to feel like they belong to a tribe become very defense defensive of new people coming in and they uh they also reject um things that are popular which is again the wrong way to look at it like to me i want everyone in the world to hear the happiest songs that are made you know the things that really make me happy like uh i want that stuff to be shared i don't want to try to keep it within a group you know i i want it to get out there and then it goes on and makes more good stuff. It's like, like if you have like this great bar you go to and you don't want anybody else to go, it's like, well, why not? Like, every, let everybody have a good time or a recipe. People don't want to give you their recipes. I'm like, you don't want people to eat more good food? What's wrong with you? Like, open it up. <laughs> well, right. I mean, it, it's even, you know, it's even worse than the party analogy because like, at least at a party, it's like, you know, you know, yeah, we're not going to invite this one guy who always gets drunk and tries to light the toilet on fire or something. Oh, that's the guy I want at the party. No. <laughs> well, if it's at somebody else's house. <laughs> <laughs> but with Power Pop, it's like, you know, you're just hearing a song. Like, there's no potential for harm. It's it's just we're all in this together, kind of. Yeah. Um. We were talking a little bit, too, about uh, I really liked or really – I really understood something uh, reading your essay about Cheap Trick when you said that they were just like, they were these working guys, you know, like they were like, you know, kind of Midwestern working guys that kind of stayed in it and they could have gone on and been like super glam, like I'm going to live in LA now in London, I'm going to be this person. But no, they stayed where they were and they just kept trying to put out good music. And it made me think that there is kind of this like, earnestness and sticking with it to power pop in a sense. Well, yeah, you know, um, 
you know, tracing the origins of power pop is, you know, is an interesting thing. But we were saying that, you know, in the in that period of time, like in the mid 70s, especially like kind of in the orbit of Chicago, not necessarily in Chicago, because like Cheap Trick were in Rockville and Shoes were in Champaign and um, and, uh, you know, the shivers he wrote about were in Milwaukee. And there were all of these power pop bands that didn't have the major label support that Cheap Trick did. We're all out playing these, you know, bar circuits in these like very, you know, blue collar cities and, um, you know, probably playing two sets a night and doing lots of covers and spending all their gig money on equipment and, uh, you know, going into recording studios, which was expensive at the time, and then making demos and sending them to labels and getting rejected and putting out singles on their own, which are now these you know, fantastic collector's items, but at the time probably didn't sell to that many people. And and you're right. There's just this like, we're going to grind it out work ethic that's uh, that's also a part of it, especially that Midwestern part of it that uh, that, that made a lot of these bands really great um, was the constant gigging. Like, using, like in the early aughts, I was trying to sign a band. I won't say who they were. They were this emo band that had been on a, a major label and um, they got dropped and we were going to pick them up and put out their next record, which I think they'd already recorded. And, uh, you know, we had a pretty good idea of what it would sell. And we said, this is how much money we'll give you. And they said, that, ah, nah, nah, it's not enough. And uh, they just decided to stop being a band because there was no money in it anymore, which, you know, is very tragic on one hand, but on the other hand, like I can't see cheap trick ever going, well, there's not enough money in it. Like, you know, there's not going to be a lot of money in it unless you get super lucky. And if you're looking at it as a career, it's never going to be a career. Like you have to love it and do the blood and sweat to make it work. Well, first of all, I, I didn't know this, um, but they're still playing. But, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm sure they're successful and they have money and they're they're. I mean, hopefully they had a deal where they, they still get some money from their albums. One never knows. You're saying that things, you know, go sideways. Um, but, you know just to keep playing because you want to play, not because you're any kind of like martyr to the music, just because you want to play gigs. You want to play music, right? And isn't that also the way, like if you're doing that every day or five days a week or three days a week, you do move forward. I mean, I would think I, I've never done it, but I, it's kind of the same thing as a writer. You just, you just keep writing. Right. Right. The more you do it, the, the better you get at it. And I think a lot of it's subconscious uh, especially when you're a writer, because you're doing it kind of on your own, you know, it's it's a very isolated thing. When you're in a band, you know, there's there's sometimes there's natural chemistry, and sometimes there's chemistry that you make by just doing it so much, right? And you get to know each other, and you get to learn to play off each other's strengths, and um, and then you come up with something that's a, a whole that's greater than its parts, and and that's a successful band and i think that's one of the things about cheap trick is that you know together they are these four sort of very kind of different people they're very smart to kind of capitalize on that as they're uh in their marketing that like two of the guys were like super good looking and the yeah. other two guys were very nerdy looking and and they always 
you know, photographed them separately on for for a while. And, you know, they 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 knew what they were doing and they knew yeah. who they were and they you know and they found their roles not only as musicians but also as these characters in this band and right. that endures in in a big way. You know, thinking though about longevity, I mean, how many bands? Like almost every band. You know, the thing that seems like the best thing that ever happened to your life, you know, meeting these people and, and being in this band and you're going to form this thing and have this life. And, you know, maybe it lasts a little while, but my God, the, the squabbles and the falling apart and someone having a baby. And it just, you know, I, I would think, you know, most bands just go away. <laughs> yeah. You've got to really, you know, you got to really want to do it and you got to be very committed and, you know, I, I mean, we, we were talking about the replacements earlier and, and, and how great Bob Mayer's book uh, is. And uh, and I think about those guys being up in Minneapolis, you know, you're fairly isolated. You know, it's not the, the, the nearest gig outside of Minneapolis is at least a two hour drive. And it's not like the East Coast where everything's jammed together. And, uh, and you know, and, and the weather's brutal for six months of the year. And you're driving to Wisconsin in a van to do in a show. Van, like the, with the cooler, with the, the one piece of like baloney floating in the ice in the cooler. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. And everybody's yeah. chain smoking and it's, you know, minus three outside. And, oh, my God. Uh, and you're making like no money. And yet, you know. Right. Yeah. What, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> but still, you know, like what a legacy the replacements have. And they did that. Yeah. Huh. Um, so for the book, did you always know what you were going to write about, like right away? Because, I mean, you you have this massive kind of broad mu career in music. And um, name a couple of the other people that you've that you've recorded and worked with. And so so, I, you know, I got to work with people on different levels, like there were bands that we signed and then there were catalogs that we had. So I got to work with like Bowie and Big Star and Elvis Costello and uh, Material Issue and Tommy Stinson's bands uh, called Perfect, um, the Raspberries, Badfinger. Oh, the Raspberries. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> 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 oh, my God. You, you, again, you know, when you get into this subculture world of power pop, there's this whole thing raging right now because uh, Eric Carmen has turned out to be like this massive Trump supporter. And it's tearing people apart about should they like the raspberries or not anymore uh, um, oh god yeah i would say just like the music if you like the music like the music you don't have to like his politics yeah i wish i didn't know you know his politics and 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 we were talking about this earlier too it's like that whole thing about you know how much do you need to know about people's personal lives and um, you know and we also talked earlier about like how it was great that there were no camera phones when we were kids God. as oh, we'd be God. in jail. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, if, if I, if there was no social media, I never would, would have known any of the stuff about Eric Carmen. So, yeah. Yeah. The camera phones, um, yeah. you know, we'd all be in jail or the opposite. We all would have outgrown the nonsense that like, okay, so there's a picture of my tits floating around the internet. Who cares? All right. Who cares? Everybody else has them too. It's like not a story. You know, we would have outgrown it at this point. And I'm sorry, I live in Chinatown, so there's a lot of noise outside. I, I apologize for the ambulances and uh, car horns honking. You know, that's New York, baby. That's right. 
<laughs> so um and 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 so i landed on cheap trick because steve uh gave me sort of a list of uh potential subjects okay and cheap trick was the one that really jumped out at me uh obviously but i think about it now and i'm like should i have said to, to steve no i'd rather write this about czar because you know steve's not going to suggest to me write a piece about czar because he was in czar sure <laughs> Sure. Did anybody, did anybody in the book write about it? I haven't read, I've only read about, I shouldn't admit this, right? About half of the essays. Nobody wrote about czar, but uh, many, many members of czar contributed. So Oh yeah, no, I loved um, Jeff Whalen's piece was great. I love that piece. It really is great. That was really fun. Especially with the Beatles, right? Because like, it's very hard to write anything new about the Beatles. I love, what was he saying? He's like, we wanted to be the guys running down the street, hiding in the, phone booth with a fake mustache, but they recognized us anyway. Or something like that. It was so cute. So, yeah, it was fine. Jeff has that beautiful, like, p- very pure rock and roll, you know, the dream of, you know, what, what you'd see in the monkeys or in Hard Day's Night or something. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's, it, and it's so, like, real in him. And I, I think that's, not to you know harp on about czar but like to me what czar did and what jeff's doing in his records now is they that the dna of rock and roll is sort of tapped out it doesn't mean that there's not good rock and roll being made but there's not a heck of a lot of new stuff you can do with it um so to me it was like czar took all the best parts of rock and roll DNA and put it in one band. Like if, if they'd had a TV show, we, they'd be, you know, store touring stadiums still. Like they just needed that. They just needed to penetrate that, the consciousness and it would have been a huge, huge thing. Hmm. So are they, does art still, they still play? Does art still play? No, Czar doesn't uh, doesn't exist at this moment. Although, and I haven't talked to Steve about this, but he's he's posted a couple of cryptic things about 2020. So I don't know if they're thinking about getting back together or not. But, okay. Huh. If they cool. do, I will be there. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> so we talked to about the 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 whole thing about the phones tying everything together and that that analog culture. Um, and, and, and what we liked about it. Um, but, and I wondered, you know, like the thing you said about the photographs, like we would, would we be over it by now? Or do you think it's, it's, we're still living in a, you know, judgmental, you know, uh, puritanical country to a certain extent? Oh, of course we are. I just find it so unbelievably boring. I mean, we started out by saying like, you know, my piece is all about the telephone. Like there was, you know, it was the seventies, it was the eighties. And, you know, that was very personal. And you're, you're talking to people on the phone. It was, you know, you could do all these personal things with the phone. It was just sort of yours. Now everything on the phone is public. We know this. I mean, your phone is listening to you. My phone is probably listening to me right now as I'm, as I'm speaking with you. And, um, but I, I've also been sort of grateful and I, I didn't put it in the essay, I don't think, um, that, you know, I didn't at 15 have a cell phone because there's no fucking way I wouldn't have taken a picture of my tits and sent it to my boyfriend. Of course I would have. And I mean, this is what you do. You're 15 and you've got a billion hormones raging in you. 
But that being the case, you know, kids have not changed. Yes, we're puritanical. Yes, we have different ways to disseminate yes information. Yes, they're still going to be doing these, you know, quote-unquote sexting. That's what you had brought up the article I had written about sexting. But the thing that I don't understand is that half of the world, let's say, has breasts. Maybe more than half, okay? And so if I'm going to get a job at, you know, In-N-Out Burger or Citibank and, and, you know, someone says, oh, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, I got this picture of you from 10 years ago without your shirt on, I'd be like, go ahead, put it on the flipping internet. Who cares? Like, really, is it that big a deal? Yeah, no, you know, it, it, it isn't, it shouldn't be. And by the way, that's a really great piece. And I encourage people to like go to your website and, and, and get the link to it because it was a fantastic piece. Um, but, you know, here's the other thing about it, too. It's, it, it, it goes to show like, I think the phone is a very, the old school phone, the Bakelite phone or the plastic phone or whatever, is a very teenage thing. You oh, know? yes. Oh, like yes. If, if you grew up with that, like your life, you know, revolved around that thing. And it was a very different kind of phone than the phones you have now. I mean, you know, I remember the cord, you know, when you did, didn't have cordless phones and you had to pull the cord into your, you know, into your bedroom and try to shut the door. That's right. Uh, to have a, a sexy little private or, or not even just talk to your friend to have a private. But you know what? I mean, I have a daughter and I have friends who have my daughter's grown, but friends that have younger daughters, it, the phone is still I mean, it's different now. You know, there's a billion commercials for Verizon and they see their parents on their cell phones all the time. But those kids still want that phone. It represents it's like it's the wall. You're breaking the wall of your home and the family out into the public sphere. Into possibility, into infinity, um, but it's just it's changed now because it used to be the phone used to be so so incredibly intimate. Come on, it was you and one person. Right now, it's you and the world. So it's different. But I mean, I still when I wrote my piece, I mean that intimacy was was what it was about. Um, yeah, and those yeah, everybody still wants that. Well, yeah, and you know, and and and, and it, it does come back to that thing where like you said you're you know you're um you're getting out of you know your parents world and into your own world and the phone's your conduit to that mm-hmm. in a certain way and 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 it's like i said it's a very teenage thing and i feel like power pop you know there are guys out there who are 65 years old playing power pop but the music has a very teenage spirit to it you know and and and, and that i think is a really great thing okay. um that's what we were talking about when I asked you before. It's like, how do you define power pop? And as someone who didn't even know <laughs> it was called a genre of music, it's just how it makes me feel, these songs. Um, it makes me go. Uh, and, I mean, you will feel that at 8, and you will feel that at 65. I mean, I hope you will. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Well, and, and, and that kind of brings us back around <laughs> to the whole idea that, you know, parents get upset that there's pictures of their daughter's tits floating around on the Internet. And it's and when these parents know damn well when they were kids, they would have done the exact same thing. <laughs> right. Like, so awesome. yeah. how, can, yeah. how can you be playing power pop when you're, you know, 65 years old and be very, um, you know, cool with the fact that you're trying to make a connection with, you know, being a teenager and then be chewing out your teenage kids because, you know, they did something you would probably would have done. You probably did far stupider things. I did far stupider things. It's a miracle. I'm alive. 
I mean, it's not that I would encourage my child to do this, but it's just expecting they're going to do things. I mean, we're all going to do stupid things. Well, I was going to say we're all going to do stupid things when we're teenagers. We're probably going to do stupid things today. But you are going to do things. Your judgment, your brain doesn't, you know, you're not completely formed yet. You're going to do these things. And then it's not such a big deal. Not such right. A big deal. That's how you find your boundaries, right? By doing dumb stuff that, you know, that you, you later go, oh, you know, wish I hadn't done it. But you're not equipped to make that choice at the, no. at the like you said, very tempting. Very tempting. Still glad I didn't have it as a teenager. Um, <laughs> okay, well, tell me what you're working on now. I'm working on a history of Rykodisc, which is the company I worked at for most of my adult life before starting my own and a couple of sidebars into other record companies. But, um, you know, it's, a, it's interesting because the label – hasn't existed for a few years so there's a definite end to it there's a real interesting arc of these you know four guys who kind of got together uh, you know wrote up a business plan on a napkin and uh, you know 10 years later were you know had a company that was making 60 million dollars a year and was the biggest independent label in america um and it's it's really interesting and it, it's I, i've been doing a lot of interviews with people and reconnecting with a lot of old friends and that's been fantastic and i it, the company was sort of founded on the cd uh technology and grew into something much bigger but um i think we're getting to the point now where uh the vinyl uh excitement of the return of vinyl is sort of starting to calm down and i'm going to make a what i'm sure will be a very unpopular prediction but i think we're we're heading for a phase it probably won't be as long as the vinyl resurgence, but I think we're heading towards a phase where there's going to be a lot of CD nostalgia, oh. even, even if there's not a lot of CD purchasing necessarily. No, really? I do. I mean, think about it. In the 70s, when I was watching TV, Happy Days was on. I had no idea about what happened in the 50s. But, you know, it was a big part of the culture through a 70s TV show. And then in the 90s, it was that 70s show. So I feel like it's these sort of 20-ish year cycles where people get really nostalgic for a time before them. So somebody who's 20 now, who really didn't live in the you know late 80s, early 90s when CDs were you know, a huge thing. They don't really have a connection to a, a CD, but there's a weird allure about that. It's like my, I, like I'm fascinated with mid-century modern furniture, you know, which like no one I knew ever owned. <laughs> I guess, um, so, I mean, when CDs came out, they were handy. You know, the tapes would get all, you know, first of all, you couldn't have like your albums in your car when you're driving around or you're, you know, walking around with a boom box and then tapes would get all shreddy. Eight, eight tracks were in for a minute and then they're gone. So CDs were like super handy, but they just seem completely antique now. You can't, you know, cars, if you buy a new car, there's no CD player anymore. It's gone. They're gone because everybody's streaming. So I'm, I mean, I understand, you know, the quality of records, old records is incredible when you listen to it. When you buy a new record now, often it just sounds like crap. I mean, they, it looks like a record, but it doesn't have the same sort of, 
I mean, I'm not an engineer and I don't know why it's something about the way the record is formed. Um, it doesn't sound as good. What would be the only thing that I could see would be the appeal to the CD is sort of the aesthetic, but in terms of sound quality, is it going to be a lot better than when you're streaming it? Well, sure. Uh, you know, eventually the pipe, you know, for streaming will get big enough that they'll be able to make it sound better than uh, or as good as a CD. But the, the, the sampling rate that you're hearing playback on on uh, on streaming is, you know, it's good enough. Uh, yeah, obviously for most people. Um, uh, and, and that's totally cool. And it's so convenient. But what I've discovered, like on my phone, you know, from iTunes days, I have like about my 5000 favorite songs. Holy and, <laughs> and, you know, I throw that on every once in a while and it, it and just put it on shuffle. And um, and I'm shocked at how much of that stuff does not exist on streaming services. Really? Yes. And is yeah. that because, like, the companies that, you know, had it, they don't exist anymore or because they're parsimonious and they're like, we don't want to let this out for not getting paid for? Or is it just a multitude of factors? It's a multitude of factors. I, I don't think so much it's necessarily that people don't want to get paid for it or, or don't think they're going to get paid enough for it uh, or that they're, you know, holding it back out of spite or anything. Uh, I think a lot of stuff was, like, independently released or... Um, and those labels don't exist or it was self-released and those people, you know, don't even know how they would get it on a streaming service at this point, how they would get it up there. Um, I think there's a lot of major label records that I really love that didn't sell a lot of copies. So no one's ever bothered to go back. Like some of them didn't even come out on CD ever. So no one's gone back and even digitized them to sure. be able. Sure. Yeah, well, it's, it's the same with, you know, I, I had articles because I started my career um, as a journalist in 1994. There was no internet, right? <laughs> and um, a few pieces that were, like, really pretty good long pieces, there was, they, were, they were nowhere until, uh, you know, an outfit came to me and said, well, we want to release them as e-books. But, yeah, I wouldn't have gone and, you know, well, probably I would have now because I would know how to get it online. But for music, it's a little harder. I mean, you have to figure out, how to digitize it and get it online. Or maybe that's not so hard. I don't know. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, there's there's ways to do it. But I think for people who, you know, they're no longer in a band, they released like three singles. I mean, we're starting to do some more of our catalog stuff and we're reaching out to these bands that um, put out a few records. It looked like it was almost going to happen, but it never did. And, you know, when you, I reach out to them now, they're either um, they're either bitter, right, and they don't want to talk about anything because they're just mad, or they're so happy that somebody remembers them and they're excited yeah. that you know you you want to put together a package of you know of everything that they did, and um, and and so that's super rewarding. But yeah, it is weird. Like y you would think now that we're in this era, like all this stuff that existed before it would start appearing on it and i think to a certain extent it does but like even you know major newspapers like when as i'm working on the rico book i'm trying to find 
photographs and I reach out to like, you know, big newspapers and say, you know, you ran this story in, you know, 1990, whatever. And they're like, oh, forget it. Like, we don't have uh, we don't have copies of any of those photos at this point. We don't have the negatives. We wouldn't know where to find them if we did. And, I, and it's just kind of like, wow, you know, it's kind of sad. It, it reminds me of something. So uh, I don't know if you would remember, but back like in the 70s, um, there were these like teen beat magazines, you know, Tiger Beat and whatever they were called. And I used to read them. I was like, you know, 12 years old. And it was David Cassidy and Donny Osmond and Bobby Sherman, who would really look like a way grown up to me. Right. He was probably 20, but whatever. And I was like, what the heck happened to Bobby Sherman? So I looked it up. Well, he became like a like a cop. And he was like, you know, he's in law enforcement, I think in Southern California. But I, I mentioned this only because, you know, some people are like, that was my old life. I don't care. I don't care if my song is digitized. You know, it was another, it was the seventies and I don't need it to be back out in the world. Like Bobby Sherman's a cop, you know, he doesn't need to be revisited as a, as a teen idol. It was just of another time. So let's share Bobby Sherman stories. Cause One of the first records I got, which I think was a Christmas present, was a Bobby Sherman album. Okay. No, because I never knew what he was famous for. Right. Well, so here's the thing. So here's, yeah, and that's the thing with a lot of these teen idols. So there was this whole network of like publicists and they would get, uh, they would get these clients, right? And it was, Bobby Sherman was on a TV show that I think only lasted like a season and a half or something called Here Come the Brides, which I think was based on a movie. Anyway, he becomes a client of, you know, these uh, one of these uh, PR firms and, you know, they push him through the machinery. He's a good looking guy. I don't know that he had the world's greatest voice, but I love that those records. I'd call those records power pop records. And um, and he ends up getting a record contract and uh and, and he's in all those magazines. And I know some of those uh, singles of his sold, you know, at least went gold. Um, I do not even know one of them. I mean, I'm, maybe I do. And I don't know that I know it. Um, are you going to send me one? Or just, I got to look it up now. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely hook you up. With, uh, <laughs> hook me up, uh, man. Greatest hits. <laughs> but I, so, and I'm sorry, I have to tell this story because nobody knows this story. But like... In the early 90s or something, I was traveling for work and I was in Miami and I was staying at this, you know, kind of broken down hotel like they had in Miami back then. And Bobby Sherman was playing in the hotel and I went to the show, which was in the afternoon and he was great. And it was all people who clearly had no idea who he was who probably lived in the hotel older you know much older oh, people oh, <laughs> oh man i would love to have been there and seen that oh it man awesome that's a story right there oh so i guess he's not just a cop i guess like he secretly moonlights he goes out and secretly plays an afternoon show in a hotel every once in a while <laughs> <laughs> well this this was the 90s he may have he okay. may have given that, I don't know, okay. but, yeah, yeah it was fantastic Okay. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. What do you think, Jeff? Absolutely. Let's hear it for Bobby Sherman. Let's hear it for Bobby Sherman. I am Nancy Rommelman. Uh, I am an author and journalist. I've got an essay called Analog Anthems in this great book 
go all the way. And thanks for having me today. It's been great talking to you. I'm Jeff Rugby, and uh, my uh, essay is about Cheap Trick. And uh, you should go out and buy this book. And while you're doing it, uh, pick up the collection of my comics. It's called Gunning for Hits, published by Image. Um, you can get it on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble or wherever you're fine. Uh, local book vendor is because God loved them very much for the work that they do.